0: So let, let's look at Daniel 4. We're going to read uh, starting at verse 28 and to the end of the chapter. And remember that as we're looking at the book of Daniel, we're, we're asking ourselves, what is the right relationship between a Christian and the secular culture? Now, we've learned that we need to be involved in the culture, but we've also learned that we need to be careful not to compromise our faith in the gospel and that that uncompromising stance would often would often result in opposition or persecution. This was last week's uh, sermon. And uh, today we will see that there's another role that we have. And that role is to expose pride in, in our culture and in particular people as something damaging and detrimental and point to the cure for it. And the cure for pride, as we will learn, is what we will call fierce mercy of God. So the cure for pride is God's fierce Mercy, and I will explain what I mean by that. So let's read Daniel 4, uh, verse 28. Uh, Before that, king had a dream. Daniel interpreted the dream, and now this dream is being fulfilled. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon? that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar,
1: lifted my eyes to heaven,
0: and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him for life who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, My reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Now. Let's talk about this fierce mercy of God. That's what we see God do in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He's fiercely merciful to him. And I'll explain more what I mean by this. Um, But we need to first learn why we need it. Secondly, how it works. And lastly, why we can trust it. So why we need this fierce mercy from God, how it works, and why we can trust it. So why we need it. Well, it's clear in the text that the problem is pride. That's why Nebuchadnezzar does, or that's why what God does to him, what he does, is because he's proud, not willing to humble himself. So what is pride? I think we can all explain that, right? Thinking too much of yourself, maybe putting yourself at the center of life, uh, attributing to yourself uh, things that you haven't done, uh, maybe uh, exalting yourself too much over others. That's pride, right? Now, it's interesting that in our culture, since we're dealing with this subject, pride has been getting more and more positive press lately. Uh, Now, often it's not called pride. Sometimes it's called self-esteem or uh, believing in yourself or loving yourself or pursuing your dream, uh, trusting in yourself. That's the language that's used. Confidence in yourself. And so it's becoming more and more positive. And so pride, like the rest of the seven deadly sins, seems seems to become more and more palatable and, in fact, desirable. And so what do we do with our culture that believes pride is essentially okay, It's not bad? Just don't be too arrogant, but pride is positive. Well, we as Christians, we need to confront that. And we need to say that pride is bad. It's dangerous. It's detrimental. And so what I want to do is I want to look at Nebuchadnezzar I want to pull out uh, four traits of pride that are negative. And you will see in the story, and we'll relate it to our lives as well, to show us and to remind us that pride, in fact is a terrible thing. So let's look at Nebuchadnezzar's. Number one, pride is unreasonable. Pride is unreasonable. Pride is the kind of disease that affects the mind, affects your reasoning, your thinking. Remember, the king is walking on the roof of this palace. He looks over the magnificent city of Babylon and he says, isn't this great? This city that I built for my glory, to be my royal residence for my majesty. Now, the city was magnificent. By all historical accounts, this was a, an, an incredible place to be. And Nebuchadnezzar was largely responsible for it. Uh, we know that uh, in the ancient world, they had seven wonders of the world. Some of them you may have heard about. There's the, the, the temple of Artemis and Ephesus and there's others. Well, Babylon had one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens. The hanging gardens. Now, remember, Babylon is a, is a place that doesn't have much water, and yet the city was green. Now, we know that Nebuchadnezzar did that, and he did that for his wife. His wife came from a place that was lush and green, and he didn't want her to suffer in a, in a, in a place like Babylon, so he, he built gardens and parks. So imagine this great city that's green. Now, imagine a city that was very well fortified. It was a fortress, The outer wall of Babylon was so wide, it was so thick, that a chariot drawn by four horses could turn around on the wall, on top of the wall. Amazing city. Wonderful temples, beautiful temples that he built to lots of the gods of Babylon. And so he looks at all of that and he said, isn't this great that I built this for myself? Now, what's wrong with that statement? There are other people involved who built it. He wasn't the only one building. Were there not brilliant architects that designed it? Did he do it all by himself? No. Were were there skilled craftsmen who made it work, the city work and it was efficient and pretty at the same time? Were there not wise managers who made sure that projects were done on time? We can use a couple of those in our city, can't we? So all these people and thousands of slaves that gave their lives to build this wonder of the ancient world. And yet, the emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, looks out and he says, I did it all. And it was all done for me. It's unreasonable. But pride is like that. Pride does not acknowledge contributions of others. We look at our accomplishments and we say, I did it all. It's just my hard work. It was my dedication. And of course we take, we don't take it into account that other people were involved there as well. So not only he's neglecting to mention there are thousands of people involved in this achievement, he's also failing to recognize and mention that God is involved there as well. Now why was Nebuchadnezzar so successful? Well, he had a certain personality. He was courageous. He was very smart. He was a brilliant politician. He was a He was a great military strategist. He was a courageous person who fought in the battles along with his soldiers. Now where does that courage come from? Where does that brilliance come from? God, he was born that way. He was born smart. He was born courageous. It's not something that he conjured up. It's not something that he made for himself. He had it. He was born into a royal family. His dad was a king, and so naturally he became a king. So when Nebuchadnezzar says, look what I've done, he could only do that because of the opportunities that were given to him, because of the personality, because of the natural gifts that were given to him by God. Is everyone born with the same privileges that Nebuchadnezzar was born with? Is everyone born with the same natural abilities that he was born with? No. God blessed him. God graciously gave him certain things that made it possible for him to succeed and become, in fact, the most powerful emperor in the ancient world. But he doesn't acknowledge that. Because pride is unreasonable. Pride doesn't see that. Now, somebody said, a preacher said that pride is cosmic plagiarism. It's cosmic plagiarism. You're taking something that's God's and you're claiming it as your own. It's thievery. Pride at its core is thievery. We're stealing and robbing God and we're saying that belongs to me, I have done it when in fact God had a great part to do in it. Pride is cosmically criminal. We just don't acknowledge what God has done. We steal from him. Now for some of you, you look at your life and you, you may say well I've, I've done pretty well for myself. There's certain accomplishments. I've graduated a school. I've I this diploma. I have I've succeeded in my job. I have done well with my family, and you can look at that and you can feel proud of yourself, and many of us do. But let me ask you this: Would you be able to achieve anything that you have achieved and you're proud of today, if you were born in a 14th century Ukrainian village into a peasant family? What opportunities would have been available to you then? You would have been illiterate. You would have been poor. You would have been exploited. You would not have been able to move out of that area. But God placed you in this culture at this time into the family that you were born into with educational and economic opportunities that you have taken advantage of. And that is in large part that you are as successful as you are because of that. But do we acknowledge that? How many of us, when you graduate high school or college or grad school or you get your PhD, your first call is to your parents, and you say, Mom, I just want to thank you. You've taken care of me so well. Dad, I just want to thank you that you raised me in a way that I have this work ethic, that I understand how to work hard and get things done and turn things in on time. And thank you for the good genes that I have. I'm smart enough to be able to understand the books I'm reading in school. Who does that, right? No, you feel proud that you have accomplished it, that you've stuck it out, that you've done well, and through your hard work and dedication, you've now succeeded. You see, pride is unreasonable like that. We don't see contributions of others or contributions of God himself. Number two, pride is oppressive. This disease of pride is not just a mental disease where it affects our mind and our thinking, But it's a social disease as well. It affects relationships. Because pride fails to acknowledge other people's contributions, it is inevitably oppressive. It exploits. It abuses. A proud person treats others as people of lower class, right? They haven't done what you've done. They're not the way you are. So they could be used and discarded if necessary. It's interesting that in verse 27, that's the passage that we did not read, when Daniel interprets the dream and says, God is going to humiliate you, Nebuchadnezzar, so why don't you turn to him now and you don't have to go through this whole ordeal? And one of the things that Daniel tells the king, he says, you should show mercy to the oppressed. Repent, turn away from your pride, and show mercy to the oppressed. Why specifically that? Because pride is always oppressive. And because Nebuchadnezzar had such a great influence over so many people, that oppression was a really big issue in the empire. Now, when you're proud, of course you're going to use others. Of course you're going to take advantage of others. And that's what pride does. And you know that from experience, don't you? That when you're talking to somebody who's self-absorbed and proud, uh, they don't listen, they just talk. You know that they don't care to find out what's going on with you, that they're not sensitive to other people's needs, that they're not good friends. You know that, right? That's what pride does. It makes you exploit others. Number three, pride is blinding. The disease of pride affects our sight, not just our mind and our social interactions, but our sight too. Remember that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream from God. Daniel interprets it. Nebuchadnezzar trusts Daniel. He knows that Daniel can interpret dreams from God. He's done it before. And the dream is that God is warning him that if you don't humble yourself, this will happen to you. You will act like an animal. You will, you will lose your sanity. You will lose your kingdom. And so he, hears the, he has the dream, he hears the interpretation, and then he forgets about it for a whole year. How can that be? How can it be that God would speak to somebody and you would just simply turn around and go about your business with no consideration of what God thinks. Well, because pride is blinding, pride is deceptive. You don't know that you're proud. Many times you hear from God and you completely disregard it. You don't think you need it. Nebuchadnezzar didn't think he needed God, he thought it was okay. He thought he could handle his issues. And even when God speaks to him directly, as he's done before, this is not new to him. And it's proven to be true before. Even when God speaks to him, he rejects it. He ignores it. forgets about it. Now let me be straightforward. There are some people here today in this room that are self-absorbed and proud and that will walk out of this church after the service is over, after hearing a sermon against pride, completely oblivious, to God's design for their life. Now, we can pretend all those people are in their first service, or we, can, or we can take a look at ourselves and say, maybe some of us here need to listen to God and not just come in and sit and leave without any change happening to you, but listen to him. Is God speaking to you? Are you open to hear what he will say to you? Would you acknowledge that perhaps, perhaps, just maybe you you may be proud? You may be a little bit too self-absorbed. Maybe you have put yourself at the center of your life where God belongs. Would you pay attention to what God is saying to you now? Listen to him. Don't leave and ignore him as Nebuchadnezzar ignored the dream. Well, lastly, and probably most importantly, pride is fatal. Pride is a fatal disease. It will kill you. A person who usurps the throne of God, who refuses to worship the one who is worthy of all worship, will eventually find himself eternally separated from God, eternally banished from the face of God, punished forever and ever. Pride is at the root of all sin, and sin separates us from God. And anyone who holds on to their pride, who insists on being at the center of life, will not be with God in eternity. There are no proud people in heaven. When you want to be with God, you need to humble yourself. And if you don't do that, you cannot be with God. And yes, you will see consequences of pride in this life. Yes, there will be things happening to you here that you will be able to say, I wish I was humble and that wouldn't happen. But more importantly, in eternity, if you hold on to your pride, which is the same as holding on to your sin, holding on to your self-righteousness, God will not accept you, and you will be banished from him forever. Pride is the first sin of Adam and Eve. That's pride. Pride is the devil's sin. So we need to be very, very careful with it. Okay, so that's why we need God's intervention. We need God's fierce mercy because pride is bad. Now, how does it work? How does this fierce mercy of God work? Let's look at it. God responds to Nebuchadnezzar's problem in doing something radical, drastic. He makes him completely different for a period of time. He humbles him, he humiliates him, he takes away things from him that are important, and thus he brings him back to himself. I want you to see two things here. This is why the the title of the sermon is Fierce Mercy. You have to see both aspects. It's fierce because of what God does to him. Remember what he does? He makes him act like an animal for seven periods of time, which could be seven months, it could be seven seasons, it could be a year and a half. He lives outside, completely alone, no relationships, no friendships, acts like an animal, just eats grass like an ox, like a cow. He's not covered by anything. His hair grows long. His nails grow long. He loses his mind. That's fierce. God isn't playing around. This is is a violent, hard, shocking thing for God to do for somebody like Nebuchadnezzar. But it is also mercy. Why is it mercy? Because God doesn't have to be involved with anybody. God doesn't have to help us, and yet God sees a proud person, and God gets involved, and God humbles him, so He comes out better, on the other hand. That's mercy. God doesn't have to do it, but He does it because He loves Him. It. So it's fears? yes, but it's mercy. Both things are important for us to see. And so Nebuchadnezzar experiences this tremendously. Radical treatment for his disease of pride. God takes his kingdom away, and he takes his sanity away. He takes his social interactions away. Now, what has really happened there? God took away his image from him. Remember in Genesis, when uh, man and woman are made, and they're made in God's image? What does that mean? We're like God because we can think like God. We're like God because we can interact with other human beings and God himself, like God. We are made in his image because we're made to rule over his creation. All of that is taken away from Nebuchadnezzar. Now remember I said that that pride is, is cosmic thievery, it's cosmic plagiarism. It's Nebuchadnezzar taking something that was God's and making it his own. Well, what happens now is that God simply reclaims what was stolen from him. God takes it back. All the natural gifts that Nebuchadnezzar had, all the political power that he had, all the social alliances that he had are now taken away. And he's reduced to being hardly anything more than an animal in the fields. Friends, if you question God's divinity, he might, he just might remind you of your own humanity. If you question God's power, God might just remind you how powerless you are. And if you think your humanity includes all the blessings that you have, and if you think that you can take all that for granted and you can just count on God blessing you and blessing you and blessing you, God is just going to take it away and show you that your humanity, without the image of God, is nothing more than being an animal. That what separates you from animals is God's blessings. It's God's image in you. So are you a proud person? You don't need to be a world emperor to be proud, you know. Are you proud? Are you self-absorbed? Are you self-centered? Are you mostly concerned with your own agenda? Do you feel like you deserve more than you got in life? That's a sign of pride. Do you feel like you need to credit yourself with whatever accomplishments you have in life, that it's you who's done it, only you? Who is on the throne of your life? Is it God or is it you? This is a simple question, and yet for many of us it's so hard to answer because we're afraid that the answer is going to be it's me. It's not God. I play God, you know, in my life, and I pretend to be religious, but I rule. It's my life. I'm in charge. Now, you see, by this definition, we're all proud, right? Maybe to different degrees, sure, maybe in different circumstances, but we're all proud if we make ourselves in any way the center of our lives. Praise God that he intervenes. Praise God that he does not wait for us to figure it out, that God comes in with his fierce mercy, messes up your life, humbles you, and draws you back to himself. Friends, praise him. Thank him that he doesn't hold back. Now imagine, you go to a doctor, and the doctor says, you have this terrible disease, and it will kill you, and it's eating you up inside, even as we talk here. But, I'm not going to do surgery on you. It's messy, going it can be really painful for you, and frankly, I don't have time. So we'll just do some pills. We'll do some physical therapy. We'll see what happens. And you know that what you need is surgery. What are you going to tell the doctor? You're going to tell him, don't hold back. Doctor, do not hold back. Cut me. Cut me, because that's what I need. And if you don't cut me, I'm not going to get better. That is a reasonable person's response to a medical situation like that. You would say. Don't hold back. Do whatever you have to do because I need to get better. If you don't do it, I will die. So no matter how painful it is, no matter how messy it is, no matter how much time it takes, do it. And yet, why don't we have the same attitude towards God? When you look at yourself and you say, I have this terrible disease of pride. I can't fix myself. And the superficial means that you have used, like pills and Physical therapy, it doesn't work. So you go to God and what would you say? Do as little as possible for me because I don't want to get hurt? What do you say? What should you say? Cut me. That's what you should say. Cut me because that's what I need. Hurt me because that's what I need. And I won't get better unless, God, you will use whatever you have in your power to humble me. Is that your heart? Towards God, is that how you pray do you understand like Nebuchadnezzar that all God's ways are just and all that he's done are things that he's done in your life are right do you know that there's nothing that God will not use for you that he can use anything and even as I say these things these are scary words for me to say but we need to hear that, that God will use cancer, that God will use bankruptcy, that he will use divorce, that God will use disability, God will use mental illness. There's nothing that God won't use. Why? Because he is fiercely merciful towards you. And he wants you to be better. And he's not going to hold back because it's going to hurt you more. He loves you, and He will use whatever means that He has to help you, to fix you. Now, have you not seen it in your life? How affliction and struggle and difficulty and tragedy unseated you from the throne of life? Perhaps that's your story of conversion and reminded you of your mere humanity and turned your eyes towards God. Listen to One commentator describing this, he says, discontent and disaster, or at least profound personal discomfort, are very often the necessary precursors of spiritual growth and change. As long as we are comfortable and at ease in this world, we are not normally ready to examine our hearts and institute deep changes. On the other hand, when God disturbs the calm waters of our lives, We begin to be ready to seek different paths to pursue. It is often when our career hopes are dashed, when our marriage relationship is in shreds, or the doctor announces that we have only a few more months to live, that we are finally persuaded to become serious about spiritual things. If that is true, however, it suggests that we should approach these troubled times of our lives, with a far more positive outlook than we normally do. These shattering experiences should prompt within us the expectation and hope that God is going to do something important in our lives. It is precisely through the storms of life that God will show us who we really are, and even more importantly, who He really is. Is that how you see your times of struggle? Are you thankful for the fierce mercy of God in your life? Can you verbalize it in your prayers? Can you pray, God, I thank you for this loss. God, I thank you for my cancer. God, I thank you for my financial struggles. God, I thank you for my child's struggles. I'm not saying any of this is easy. But we need to hear it. We need to believe in it. If we are to understand how to live this life, we need to understand that God is fiercely merciful towards his children. Would you be able to say with Nebuchadnezzar, this newly converted king, I think that's when he got converted. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he's able to humble. He knows that he needed exactly what happened to him, and it was right and just for God to do that. And coming out on the other side, he appreciates it, he is grateful, and he praises God for being fiercely merciful. Now, let's move to the last point, perhaps the most important one, because up to now, You may have been listening to me and you may have agreed with me theologically and you may have agreed with me from this text and saying, yes, this is how God works. But in your heart, you may be questioning whether God is really good. In your heart, you may not feel that God is merciful. You may feel that he is just fierce and there's no mercy. You may think that God may not be there at all. There's just random things happening to you. How do you know? How do you know that God is involved with you and that God is involved in this way, in the way that He is fiercely merciful, in the way that He is changing you and helping you and it's for your benefit, that it's good for you? How do you know? In other words, how do you trust God's fierce mercy in the midst of your suffering? How do you do that? Well, I'm going to give you another medical analogy and then we'll finish with the Gospel through that. Imagine, you go to a doctor's office and the doctor says, I know that you have this terrible disease and I'm out of options. The only thing I can offer to you is this new radical experimental treatment. Now I have to warn you, the doctor says, it's going to be very painful and it's going to be really long and it's going to require months of therapy and it's so expensive that you're going to come out of bankrupt bankrupt out of, out of the street. What is your response to that? Your response depends on whether you trust the doctor or not. Whether you think he's just taking you for a ride, he's doing something he doesn't know about, and he just wants your money, or you think he really does have your best interest in mind. How do you know? Well, imagine that same doctor telling you, I know that you are hesitant about it. I know how it sounds, but my son, My son went through the same treatment that I'm offering to you right now. And he came out on the other side and everything worked and it was right. And I'm going to apply the same thing I did for my son now to you. Trust me. Would you trust him? Probably. There's more reason to trust him for sure. Now think about God. A God who is fiercely merciful to you. God who tells you right now, I have a son. And my son went through all the stuff you're going through and worse. You know, Nebuchadnezzar lost a kingdom, right? It was a geographically defined kingdom in the ancient Near East, Babylon. Jesus lost the kingdom that included Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Jesus, who by right ruled the universe, gave it up. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and became like an animal for a time. Jesus humbled himself and became human for all eternity. Now, if you think, the gap between human and animal is wide. Think about the gap between divine and human. And yet Jesus jumps that and stays there forever. When we see him, when he returns or when we see him in heaven, We will see his scars. We will see his body. Why? Because he remains human through all eternity. He's not going to give up his humanity. Nebuchadnezzar, a common king, was humiliated as a cosmic criminal. But Jesus, a cosmic king, was humiliated as a common criminal. Put on the shameful cross, the most shameful death in the ancient world. And on the cross, the fierce mercy of God was applied to his Son. Now you think that the suffering that you experience is hard, and it is hard. But imagine a person taking the suffering of the whole world. Imagine God himself saying, I will bear the penalty for all the pride. So part of the pain that you feel, I'll take all of the pain on me, Jesus says. And on the cross, Jesus is crushed for us. And notice, there's no mercy given to Jesus. When you suffer, you feel the presence of God as a believer. And you know that God is with you, that he's suffering with you. Jesus had no presence of God on the cross. He was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where is God? He's gone. There's no mercy. Jesus takes the full penalty and mitigates it. Jesus took the cure for the pride of all of humanity, all the pain, and the mercy was withheld from him so it could be extended to us. Friends, the cross is the key to understanding and accepting suffering in your life. You can trust God in all his fierce mercy because he's the God of the cross. No other God can demand this kind of trust. But our God can. He's the God of the cross. Romans 8.32, a great encouraging passage, says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously Give us all things. If you know what God gave for you on the cross, we should not question any other expression of fierce mercy in our lives, Because we can trust him based on the cross. Based on what he did with Christ.